Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Before we read the text today, I want to remind you of something we just heard, and it's this. Faith in God is always a response to truth and reality. Faith in God is always a response to truth and reality. So Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to begin in verse 1. And the word of the Lord reads, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made out of things that are invisible. This is the word of the Lord. The 19th century um, Reformed Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon once wrote, Faith is believing that Christ is what he is said to be and that he will do what he has promised to do and then expect this of him. I actually uh, grew up believing that I was a Christian because I was told that I was a Christian. I was told that we as a family were Christians. And this idea was reinforced for me because I had a grandmother who was very vocal about her Christian faith. And she taught me many Bible stories and she sang many Christian songs with me and she dragged me to church And one day when I was five years old, she pushed me up front and had me say some kind of a prayer that I can't remember. And then she shouted for joy and said, you're saved. And um, at that moment, I believed I was a Christian, but I had no idea what that even meant. Uh, This notion was further reinforced for me um, because, uh, you know, my family went to to church a few times and uh, when I was a child. And, uh, And then also my, my parents were happy to ship me off every summer to vacation Bible school. Uh, so that I could uh, at least get out of their hair for a little while. And occasionally we attended midweek Bible clubs like Awanas and Royal Rangers. And every time I went to church, everyone told me that I was a Christian, even though I had no, had not ever made a heartfelt confession of, of faith in Christ. And as I grew older, you know, my family stopped going to church, but we still prayed for our meals. And my parents reminded me that there are things that we didn't do, like take the Lord's name in vain because we were Christians. And so I identified myself with that. I thought I was a Christian. But then I grew up and I became an adult and I began to ask some bigger questions. Like, how do we know that we can trust the Bible? How, how do I know that the Jesus, that Jesus himself is the only way to God? How do, how do you know which is the right way to believe in Jesus, which is the wrong way to believe in Jesus? How do you know that Jesus is even a real person? These are the kind of questions I would ask me when I became an adult, and I'd ask many more penetrating questions like this. And I began to get conflicting answers from a number of different people in my life to these questions, right? People that I knew and that I respected, people that I thought they would actually know what the answer was and what the truth is. But it seemed to me that the most common answer I would receive when I struggled to accept the particular understanding that someone was trying to teach me about Christianity is that you just need to have faith. Sherman, you just need to take it on faith. Sherman, you just need to believe. And this is something I struggled with as an adult because it seemed counterintuitive to me because what I believed that I was being told essentially was I'm supposed to believe in something even though I don't have a good reason to believe it. I'm supposed to have faith in something in order to overcome my doubts and questions rather than getting my doubts and questions actually answered. And that just seemed weird to me. Why 
Am I going to believe in something that, that I don't know that it's true? Why would I invest my life in a religious system, you know, following the guidelines of some faith system, if I'm not absolutely convinced of what I believe is actually the truth? And so for me, at that time in my life, the idea of faith was this nebulous bridge that spanned the distance between fact and fiction. My understanding of faith was, was believing in spite of the evidence. Faith was this magic power that allowed me to suspend the nature of reality so that I could believe in the unbelievable. For me, my understanding of faith was a blind faith. And I just was not okay with that. I just could not get along with that. Because that kind of faith seems juvenile to me. It seemed anti-intellectual to me. It seemed irresponsible to me. Why would I believe in something without completely having a good reason to believe it? Why would I believe in something I didn't know was true? That's the place I came from. That's where I, what I understood faith to be. Now, fortunately, that's not what faith really is. Faith is not some blind willingness to believe the unbelievable. It's not some, simply closing our eyes and really wishing something to be true. Faith is actually more tangible than that. Faith is more real than that. Especially our faith in, in God. Remember, faith in God is always a response to truth and reality. As the author of Hebrews says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of the things not seen. And we're going to talk about that as we go along. But this week, we're starting a brand new series titled Faith and Hope. And in this series, we're going to ask the really tough questions. Like, what is faith? What is hope? How can faith in an unseen God be tangible and actually real? How can I put my faith in something so incredible as the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Why is faith a response to truth and reality? And what does that kind of faith mean for me in my life? We're going to answer those kind of questions because, let's face it, we live in a world that struggles with faith. Some people believe, as I have believed, that faith is this blind belief in the unbelievable. And our world is hostile to that. Right? Our world and our culture pokes fun at that all the time. People of faith are labeled as silly and juvenile and simple and anti-intellectual and backwards and naive and just downright stupid. I have personally heard a number of atheists say, with an astonished disbelief. Do you mean to tell me that people actually believe that bull stuff? Now, that's not the word they use, but you kind of get the point. Our world is hostile to the notion of faith, especially blind faith. And it's not just the world out there, though. It's just not people out there. Some of these people that are hostile to our faith are our neighbors. Some of the people that, that, that are hostile to, to faith are our friends, even our coworkers. People that we do business with. Some of them are even our family members. Some of them say things like, you mean to tell me that you actually believe in a talking snake in the garden? You mean to tell me you actually believe in a worldwide flood? You mean to tell me that you actually believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? That, that he was actually really God in the flesh? You mean to tell me that you believe that he actually rose from the grave? And that you believe in miracles? Do you actually believe that God is supposed to be good and all-powerful and, all and yet he allows the evil in the world? How can you believe that? Right? The world around us is hostile to faith. It's hostile to faith in Christ especially. And this hostility is growing closer and closer to home. We're beginning to feel the pressure 
around us. And not just by strangers on YouTube and Facebook, but people that we're the closest to. We're feeling pressure all around us to change our beliefs, either to completely give up our belief in God or at least to compromise on parts of the faith that really people get offended by or people struggle with. But we have to understand this isn't a new phenomenon. Dan Dorini, uh, in an article that he wrote for the, uh, just this Friday um, for the Gospel Coalition, notes that for centuries, liberal theologians have believed in their task to make Christianity palatable to modern man. They want to make, you know, the Christian faith appeal to everyone in culture. In fact, he says, the liberal theologian's goal is to rescue Christianity by excising or cutting out the elements which seem most offensive in that particular day. He continues to say that in some eras, the doctrine of sin is unacceptable. And another, it's miracles. In another, it's the virgin birth or the substitutionary atonement or biblical sex ethics. But the theme is always the same. In order to make Christianity believable, certain doctrines must be abandoned. There's always been pressure on people of faith, either to give up their faith altogether or to compromise their faith in some fashion. Because faith, according to the the world, is, is really about believing something that you want to believe even though it's not true. Well, in this series, we're going to look at what faith really is. Not as what the world defines it, but actually what what, what the Bible defines it. We're going to look at what God himself has to say about faith. And then we're going to explore why we can confidently, confidently have a real life-saving faith in Jesus Christ. Why we can confidently have faith in the doctrines and the teachings that are found in the Bible that were taught ever since the very beginning. So many, the, 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 the doctrines that so many people past and present struggle with. The goal of this series is simply to reinforce for you that faith in God is always a response to truth and reality. The truth about who he is and the reality about what he has done for us and what he will do for us in the future. Again, as Charles Spurgeon says, faith is believing that Christ is what he is said to be and that he will do what he promised to do and then expect this of him. That's the goal of the series. And the foundation of this series is the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews actually is one of the most theologically important books in the entire Bible. It has a profound theological insight into the doctrine of salvation, uh, the doctrine of the atonement of Christ, and the very nature of what faith itself is. Now, before we jump into um, the, the book of Hebrews and look at our text... Let's take a moment and talk about the context of Hebrews. The letter of Hebrews was probably written by the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter. And I personally believe and still maintain that it was the Apostle Paul who wrote that. I've got lots of reasons to believe that, but I don't want to bore you to death today. Um, And plus, we don't have time for that. I think you guys want to have lunch at some point, so we'll skip over that part. But suffice to say that this is a really important theological letter that was written by a very important uh, apostle or church leader. And it touches on a lot of issues, especially about faith. Now, with that, one of the most important things that we have to get clear about is before we can actually really investigate the letter and the text is we always have to begin with the context. We must clearly understand the context because because the truth is the letter of Hebrews was written 2,000 years ago to first century 
Jewish people. They had a first century Jewish audience, which means this letter was written to a specific cultural context. And it was written to a specific group of people in a specific period of time. This letter was, has both a cultural context and a historical context that it fits into. And both of these things affect the meaning of the text for us today. In fact, to ignore that context is to run the risk of misinterpreting what the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate. And uh, you have to understand, people do that all the time. Right? People will read the book of Hebrews and other books of the Bible without actually thinking about what the text actually meant to the original audience. Which, by the way, is exactly what the text is supposed to mean. It means what it meant to the people that it was written to by the author who actually originally wrote it in that context. But many people will overlook that and they will want to quote scripture out of context in order to pr- prove a preconceived kind of idea right and then and then realize that it doesn't even mean what what, what the text even meant for them in fact uh, what what is worse is if you read the book of hebrews without actually putting it into context and actually doing a little bit of homework um, you can, you'll find it difficult to understand some of the references in the letter and because of that many people will then read it and spiritualize or even allegorize the text which changes the meaning of the text altogether so always context is vitally important to this book and every other book of the Bible. And so the first thing, in co- uh, the first context we need to consider uh, of this letter is the cultural context. What was the culture like to the, of those people who received the letter? This letter, as I said, was written by Paul or Peter, which means it was written by a first century Jewish Christian. And it was written to other first century Jewish Christians. And the first thing we need to be understand is that we don't live in the first century, Right? We live in the 21st century. We are separated by 2,000 years of history and technological development and philosophical thoughts, right? And the truth to be told, we have no idea what it means to live in the first century. Our world is completely different. Our experiences are completely different. We live, they lived in an agricultural society. They had no real concept of what individualism was. There was no TV No electronic communication. There were no cars, no public transportation. They walked everywhere they went. They worked from daylight to dark. For the most, for most of the people in the first century, they spent most of their time, you know, most of their waking hours, you know, engaged in some activity like working or, you know, sewing or, or, or taking care of the kids or trying to feed their family. They really had no leisure time to speak of. By contrast, today we live in a high tech world of instant communication, instant information, abundant fast food, hours and hours of, of, uh, of our lives are spent, you know, in leisure. Some people say we don't have that much leisure time. Just ask yourself how much time you spend in front of a screen on a tablet or a phone or uh, a game console. We live in a postmodern world that's losing its grip on objective reality. Our world and our understanding of the world around us is different than first century Jews was, right? Our world is defined by our individualism, right? Our world is defined by expressivism. Everybody has a right to express themselves in in, in whatever way they want to. Our world is defined by Snapchat and Instagram and Facebook. But in the first century, the world was defined, you know, not by their individual life, but as a community. Their world was a cultural identity. They were Jews, and being a Jew meant everything to them. Not, it, it, this affected their family life. This affected their community. It affected their work, not just simply their faith. And I think I can speak for the majority of us at least. We're not Jewish, right? We're not Jews. 
We don't come from a Jewish background. We don't come from a Jewish culture or heritage. Orthodox Judaism is a culture and lifestyle that, 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 that's its own. Jews see life in the world differently in many respects than we do. For instance, most Christians don't understand why it would be offensive to a Jew if you were to go to a synagogue on a Sabbath right, and say the name Yahweh. It would be offensive to the Jews because Jews don't say or pronounce the divine name of God. Because they have such reverence for God. It would be deeply offensive to them. You would not be invited back because of that. And it's something we don't relate to. Okay? And to make things even more complicated, Jews of today are still very different from the Jews of the first century. Because Jews of the first century, they had a temple. right? They had the Levitical sacrificial system. The Jews don't have those things today. They had the priesthood. They don't have that today. And so their experience with God is completely different even today. In fact, the book of Hebrews deals at great length with the elements of first century Judaism to actually explain the supremacy of Christ. It talks about the temple in the most holy place and the day of atonement and the high priest's office. These are things that we don't even have any, any way to relate to, but these are the things that were part of their identity right from the beginning as a people. So cultural context is really, really important. But the other thing that's important is the historical context. What was happening at this point in history? What are the events that were shaping the world that were influencing people at the time? Well, the book of Hebrews is believed to be written somewhere between 63 and 67 AD, which is about 30 years after Jesus was, had died and had been resurrected and ascended to heaven, right? And the church had grown quite a bit, right? But one of the big issues was that Rome and Jerusalem were kind of like at odds. In fact, it wasn't but a few years later in in AD 70 that the Romans actually stormed Jerusalem and burned down the temple and destroyed Jerusalem altogether. So you have to understand at this point in history, there's persecution against Jewish people. The Romans, the Romans didn't, didn't, didn't like the Jews because they were rebelling against them. Right. And so they were persecuting the Jews and this meant Christians too. Right. But to make things worse, Jewish Christians not only suffered under the Romans, they were being persecuted by religious Jews because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Which means that that, that Christians not only suffered at the hands of strangers, they were actually being persecuted by their own people. They were being shunned and exploited and arrested and even put to death by Jews. Remember, that's the story of the Apostle Paul. That's where he comes from. He was a Jewish person trying to persecute Christians. That's what he did before he came to Christ. And these Jewish Christians were being persecuted by their very own blood, so to speak. And so there was this tremendous pressure on these Christians either to turn away from their faith altogether. Or at least to soften up on some of the doctrines that were offensive to the Jews. Like the deity of Christ. It offended the Jews deeply that people would call Jesus God. It was blasphemy to them. Other doctrines that offended the Jews were the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ or the atoning sacrifice of Jesus or his high priestly office. The idea that Jesus could replace the priesthood and the sacrificial system just was was blasphemy to the Jews. And so many who profess faith in Christ, right, they were pressed to turn away either from Christ altogether or at least compromise and say, well, maybe he wasn't really God. He was an angel, you know. Maybe it wasn't like, you know, we, we still need the sacrificial system, but he's still, you know. And that's actually the reason why that Paul wrote the letter to the Hebrews. It's the reason why it was written in the first place. It was written to encourage the Hebrew Christians to stand strong in their faith in Christ and not 
only that, but to stand strong on the foundational doctrines that they had been taught. Now, with that, the letter was written really to three distinct groups of people. Each of these people had their own issues of faith. The first group of people were the true believers. People who actually put their trust in Jesus Christ. And they were converted and they possessed the life-giving faith in Jesus. This letter was written to encourage these believers to hold firm to their faith. right? Because they felt tremendous pressure from, from strangers and even their family members to turn away from Jesus. Or at least to water down the doctrines of their faith. The second group of people were people who actually came to the place where they intellectually assented to, to Jesus. They, they understood that Jesus was Lord, right? And they saw and understood what Jesus did and they valued that. They wanted to be a part of that, right? They intellectually understood the gospel, right? And the life of Jesus really appealed to them, but they weren't truly converted. They weren't all the way there. They were on the fence about actually moving to faith in Jesus, especially in light of the persecution that Christians faced. And then the third group of people that this was addressed to were non-believers. They didn't even have even the intellectual assent to Christ Right? So for them, faith seemed to be actually impossible and even ridiculous. But in this letter, there's an appeal by Paul to use the Jewish life and the Jewish culture and Jewish history to point towards the reality of Christ so they could turn and receive Christ and be saved through faith. And so it is this cultural and historical context that we need to keep in mind as we go over the next several weeks looking at this letter. This letter was written to first century Jews, many of which faced persecution because of their faith in Christ. And they were being pressured to walk away from their faith or at least to compromise their faith. Now understand, um, to, to under, understand this, let's um, turn our attention to today's text in Hebrews, which, by the way, is really one of the most important and profound definitions of what faith actually is. So look, at, look with me to Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, and we read, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This right here is the definition that, that Paul the Apostle offers. Right? In English, it's just 15 words. In the Greek, it's actually just nine. This is a short, compact verse. Very short definition. Right? But it's very concise, and Paul packs a world full of meaning in these few words, especially with respect to two important words, the words assurance and conviction. In fact, let me just read this text for you again. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right? Now, let's contrast that to, to the statements that many of our culture make. Tom Stoppard says, faith may be defined briefly as the illogical belief in an occurrence that of is the illogical belief in an occurrence of the improbable. Frederick Nietzsche says, faith means not wanting to know what is true. An anonymous atheist posted online, faith is the belief without and against evidence and reason. Coincidentally, that is also the definition of a delusion. Some people actually call faith wishful thinking. Others call it, you know, belief in the unbelievable. But that's not how the Bible describes this at all. Look again. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, we, do we see in this text? We do see that, 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 that faith is related to something we can't see, obviously. 
And this connection, there's a connection to something that we're hoping for that we can't see. But is that really, because we can't see, does that really mean that we're just wanting not to know the truth? Is that really the source of a delusion? Just because I can't see the object of my faith, am I engaging in wishful thinking? Think about this. I cannot see the force of gravity. But I exercise faith in in its existence every time I take a step. I have faith that when I pick up my foot, it will be drawn back to the earth and it will hold me in place so I don't slip around or float off into space. I am firmly convinced of it, but I can't see it. I have faith that when I plug my cell phone charger into the socket, that electricity that I can't see will make its way up the cord and into my phone's battery, a process, again, I can't witness with my own eyes. I have faith that the sounds that I hear around me are from the real things in the world around me that I see. And they're not simply figments of my imagination. There are many philosophers who ask that question, is, is, is what we even sense actually real? If, if we have this experiment where a thought experiment like the matrix where my mind is actually just, you know, just impulses and signals. Is the sound that I hear actually Real. I can't see sound waves. I have faith in lots of things I can't see. So just because the, our faith and hope rests in something that we cannot see with our eyes doesn't mean it's wishful thinking. But let's even take a closer look at the words assurance and conviction here. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. These two words are not passive words. These are not words of wishful thinking. These are not blind faith kinds of words. These are not ignoring reality kinds of words. They are assurance, confidence. In fact, this word assurance in the Greek is this word right here. It's pronounced hupostis. Hupostis. And this word right here does mean assurance, but it also means substance. It also means reality. It brings with it this idea of something that's tangible, something that is real. It can be defined as a confidence, an assurance that can be defined as a guarantee or even a reality. Hupostis literally means to stand under. That's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a combination word, right? Or to understand. It means to possess. It means standing under a guaranteed agreement like a title deed or a contract. It's to hold on to a guaranteed promise of something. It is a real assurance, like like the title to a property. It's a legitimate legal claim on something that you have the right to and something you can take possession of. And what Paul is saying is that faith is this guaranteed assurance in what you are hoping for. It's not just a possibility. It's not a wish. It is, in reality... Okay? It's a reality that you have a legal right to. That's what Paul's saying here. It's the idea that not only you know, what you hope for is a reality, but you are actually entitled to that reality. The word hypostis is a strong word conveying a rock-solid idea of real things. For believers, hypostis is the Lord's guarantee to fulfill the faith that God gives. You see, our faith that we exercise in Him is a faith that He gives to us. We're further told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that Jesus himself is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. We have assurance for what we hope for because Jesus himself is the founder and the author of our faith. And not only is he the founder, but he's the perfecter of our faith, which means he's going to bring our faith to full completion. 
You see, this isn't a pipe dream, right? This isn't, you know, a myth kind of stuff. This isn't, I believe something, you know, in spite of the reality kind of an issue. This is, I have faith because God has made me a promise. And not only will he bring the promise to reality, he will give me the faith to believe it. Because I have a radical guaranteed assurance to that promise. I have a legal claim because God promised it. That is the idea of that word. And then we have the word conviction. The Greek word for conviction is this, elechas. Elechas. It just simply means proof or persuasion. But it's actually more than that. This word carries with it the idea of inner conviction and internal persuasion from God himself and the promises that he's made. It's a conviction of the supernatural, right? It doesn't come from within us, but it comes from God himself. Now, so with that in mind, let's look at this again. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. No one... And one of the, one of the things in, in the, uh, about, about the Jewish author and Jewish writings, one of the common threads that you'll find throughout the Bible is the use of what's called parallelism. Parallelism is simply the, um, a, a literary device that, that the author uses to make a point. Okay? And what he does in, with parallelism, he will either take an, two ideas that are the same or two ideas that are contrasting, put them together side by side to add emphasis. You have two phrases in this particular text here that are in essence the same idea. Right? That's what you see in this text. The assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. These are the same idea being retold. Assurance and conviction are the same idea. And the thing hoped for and the thing that's unseen, again, is the same idea. Now, why is this important to us? Why would we care about Jewish literary devices of parallelism? Well, it's important because Paul is using this to make an emphatic point. He's trying to drive the point home. And the point is this. Faith is a real, tangible assurance. It is a guarantee. It is an internal conviction given by God. It is a confidence that comes from God in what is hoped for. It is a confidence in the promised hope that cannot be physically seen in the moment. Okay? Paul is saying faith is believing God's promise and then living as if it's real. That's essentially what Paul is saying. Faith is believing God's promise and then living your life as if it's completely real. Paul says, for, for by it, faith, the people of old received their commendation. Right? Now, this word commendation means a number of different things, but the King James Version says this. It says, um, by faith, the elders obtained a good report. The New Living Translation says that uh, through their faith, the people of old uh, earned a good reputation. Now, the idea here is that the people of the Old Testament who lived by faith, right, because they lived by faith, were highly regarded by God because of their faith. In fact, William MacDonald notes that because they walked by faith and not by sight, they received divine approval, right? And that's what Paul's communicating here. The people that lived by faith in God's promise, God approved of them because, not because of what they were doing, because of their faith in him. In fact, in verse 6, Paul makes the opposite point. He says, and without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he would reward those who seek him. 
So faith is not some pipe dream. Right? Faith is not some willingness to believe the impossible in spite of the evidence. Faith is the divine confidence and assurance that God will absolutely do what he has promised us that he will do. That he will absolutely fulfill the faith that he has implanted in our hearts. And those who walk in faith are ultimately rewarded for that faith. And those who won't walk in faith cannot please God. You see, faith is simply so much more than just a wish. It's so much more than a desire for something to be true. It is a confident conviction that propels us toward action because we know, not simply wish, but we know that the object of our faith, which is God, will do what he's promised to do. This kind of faith is the power to follow God where he leads because it is guaranteed assurance of our hope in him. In fact, Paul describes this kind of faith in action Throughout the rest of this chapter, he says in verse 4, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, though uh, through which he was con- uh, commended as righteous. God com- commending him uh, by accepting his gifts. By faith, not by works, but by faith, God declared Abel righteous. Verse 5, he says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Enoch's faith was so strong that he literally walked with God. And he never tasted death. He never died because God just took him to heaven. Verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. God had promised Noah that he was going to do something. Noah believed him and took action based on that faith. And his family was saved as a result. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham uh, obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he would receive as an inheritance. God had singled out Abraham for a purpose to create a new nation. And Abraham obeyed God, even though that Abraham had no idea where he was going. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born the descendants as many as the stars of heaven, as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Sarah in her old age bore the promised son because God had promised it. And she believed it and it came to pass. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he, be, he was tested, offered up Isaac, and, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom he said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. God said, sacrifice your son to me, and Abraham, by faith, obeyed. Because he completely trusted God and he knew that God was faithful. And he knew that God had the power to restore his son if, in fact, he did sacrifice him. And he was completely confident in the power and the promise of God. Verse 20, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Verse 21, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of his sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Joseph knew 
that the Israelites one day would finally inherit the promised land. And he made it clear that when that happened, that they were going to take his bones and bury him in the promised land with them. Verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict because they trusted in God. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was Grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Even Moses, by faith, was looking for the coming of the Messiah. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. Verse 30, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been circled for seven days. 31, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Over and over and over again, Paul talks about who these people were and the faith that they had in God. Their faith was not a blind wish, right? Their faith was not just some wishful thinking. Their faith was a confident conviction that God is what he said he was and that he'll do what he promised to do. And then Paul goes on to say, and what more shall I say? For, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets who through their faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life, a life that's promised through Christ. Verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two and they were killed with a sword and they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute and afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world is not even worthy wandering about in the deserts and the mountains and the dens and the caves of the earth. All and all these, though commended through their faith, approved of by God, did not receive what was promised since God has provided something better for us. That, apart from us, they should not be made perfect. You see, Paul walks these Hebrews through the hall of Jewish history. And he does so to illustrate what it means to walk by faith and how God has proved himself faithful over and over and over and over again. You see, for Paul and for those who trust in Christ, faith is not simply a suspension of reality. It is rather a confirmation of reality. It is a confirmation of the truth. God has a proven track record of faithfulness that Paul points to in this text. For Paul, faith is not a belief in spite of the evidence. For for Paul, faith is a natural and logical conclusion that you come to based on the overwhelming evidence of God's goodness and his faithfulness. 
By faith, these people lived. By faith, they experienced God's goodness. By faith, these people died trusting in the ultimate promise that God would one day make all things right. The same promise that we hold to. By faith, we understand, Paul says, that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen is not made by the things out of things that are visible, but invisible. By faith that we trust it is that God who made all things and not some random outworking of natural processes. Even science has come to that place where it concedes that the material world sprang forth out of an invisible nothingness that is non-material. Science has come to the point where it struggles to deal with the implications of a universe that began out of nothing, something coming from nothing. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. By faith, we know it was him. This is not a blind faith. The evidence points to that. In fact, Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, can, can have, been clearly per, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. God's invisible attributes, his invisible attributes are manifested in the world around us. We can't see them, but they're still there. You can't see gravity, but it is manifested in the world around us. You can't see electricity, but it's manifested in the world around us. You can't see sound waves or radio waves or microwaves, but they are real and they're manifested in the world around us. And it's the same with God. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. God's fingerprints are everywhere. David tells us the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. We have faith in that God created all things by his word. Not because because it's, you know, wishful thinking. But because he granted us that faith. But also, all of creation confirms that faith and the truth for us. So faith in God is not some anti-intellectual denial of reality. Faith in God is a confirmation of the greatest reality. It's an acceptance, a humble acceptance of the greatest truth. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, Now understand, Paul doesn't just simply leave the Hebrews hanging there in the Old Testament. He doesn't leave them simply with the creation of the world and the miracles of the Old Testament. He uses this faith to urge them into a greater faith and a greater reality. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Not only did God create the world. Not only did God do mighty things throughout history in the lives of his people who had faith in him, God sent his son to endure the cross and to be despised for us. Jesus, God in the flesh, came into the world as a man of history, born of a virgin, tempted as we have been tempted. He lived a perfect life. He 
revealed the image of God to the world, and he willingly went off as a lamb to the slaughter. Christ was arrested, and that's not wishful thinking. That's a fact in history that no one disputes. Christ was tried and falsely accused. That's a fact of history. Christ was beaten to a bloody pulp, another fact of history. And he willingly allowed himself to be nailed to a Roman cross where he suffered and died for our sins. This is not a pipe dream. This is not some religious wish. It's a fact of history. He was taken down from the cross, prepared for burial, and they laid him in the tomb of a public figure named Joseph of Arimathea, where they all knew where that was. Again, another fact from history. And three days later, the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. And again, this is not a delusion. This is not some myth. This is not some fantasy. Okay? This is a fact from history. The tomb was empty. Almost all historians, including the skeptics, admit the tomb was empty. The skeptics say, oh, I don't know how it got empty, but they admit that it was empty. They also agreed that the disciples actually ran and hid as cowards after that happened. And then somehow, someway, in a way that they can't explain, they changed. And somehow, someway, they, even the skeptics will admit, the followers of Christ saw him alive again afterwards. Again, they will say, we can't explain how, but they know for a fact that they saw him. They experienced Jesus after his death. And that experience radically transformed them. It caused them to be bold men of faith. Where they once were cowards, they were bold men of faith who professed the resurrection of Jesus Christ to everyone they came in contact with. In the process, it changed the entire world. Again, it's a fact from history. All of these men, except for John, were tortured and martyred for what they saw with their own eyes, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. They died preaching the gospel. They died confessing that they saw Jesus, God in the flesh, come back from the dead. That is the facts of history. Faith in Jesus Christ is not some wish to get me through the hard parts of my life. Faith in Christ is not just some wonderful story that inspires me when I'm struggling. Faith is the rock-solid foundation that I build my entire life upon because Jesus' claim was to be God in the flesh and he promised to save me from my sins. And he died and he rose again in history to prove both of those things. That both of those things were absolutely true and real. And so faith is the only logical conclusion I can come to. A former atheist. Faith in Christ is the only thing that makes sense in light of the evidence. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I have complete God-given confidence in my hope for Jesus to save me. And even though I cannot see him right now with my eyes, I have absolutely encountered him. I have experienced him. He has radically changed my life. And I know he's real, as real as anybody I have ever met in my life. I know for a fact that he is real. And he is faithful to do what he has promised to do. Again, as Charles Spurgeon says, Faith is believing that Christ is what he is said to be. And that he will do what he promised to do. And then expect that of him. That is the kind of faith that Paul is talking about here in Hebrews. That is the kind of faith that I have 
in Jesus Christ. What about you? If you have not come to a place where you have received Jesus Christ by faith as your Savior, come talk to me after. Just, it'll take a couple minutes. I'd be happy to just share with you how you can have the same kind of confidence that I have. If you have, though, trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then let that faith, let that reality shape your actions and walk in that faith today and obey the calling that God has out in your life. We all know that God's calling you to something. So walk in that. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for this truth. What a radical truth that our faith is not just some wish, some nebulous idea where I have hope in something that's not real, but that my faith is founded on the reality of who you are and your faithfulness, and I can trust you, and I can hold you to that promise. I thank you, Lord God, that that's what our faith is constituted of, that it's a reality, Lord, that we know for a fact that no matter what happens in this life, that when we meet you, Lord, that you're going to be faithful to take us home. As your word says, for, the, for, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Your word says that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, thank you for that promise that I can walk without the condemnation in my own life. That I can walk without that guilt. Not because of who I am, because of who you are. I can walk confidently knowing, Lord, that you were faithful to complete the work that you started in my life. And Father, I pray that all of us would walk in that. That we would all just embrace afresh this faith, Lord. This real, robust faith that should shape our lives and our actions, Lord. That because of that faith that we should walk in an... In, and an amazing joy in the confidence that we have in you, that no matter what happens, it's all going to work out. That no matter what comes our way, Lord, that all things are going to work for the good of those who love you and call according to your purpose. That, Lord, that when, it, when this time is one day over, you're going to come back, you're going to make all things right, and we'll spend eternity in your presence with those who also have professed faith. And Father, give us the confidence to walk in that faith and give us, most importantly, a confidence to share that faith. That we would go out there and not be ashamed. And that we would be able to stand up and answer the tough questions. And that we'd be able to stand up and confidently declare that Jesus is Lord. Not because I wish it to be so, because it's absolute truth. And I thank you for that. And I pray, Father God, you'd raise up a people in this church who are passionate for your name. I pray that you protect those who are not here and give them traveling mercies as they come back, Lord. And I pray that you're glorified in all that we say and do this week. In Christ's name we pray. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.